0: Well, about one of the most famous political scandals in recent memory, the Watergate scandal. Everyone's heard of this. Uh, obviously, it was the thing that ended up toppling former U.S. President Richard Nixon's administration in 1974. Everyone's heard of it. Such a famous scandal that um, it's actually what lead. It, it, it's what led to the uh, to, to the suffix "gate" being added to you know countless scandals year years. we do it even today. You know things like. Nipplegate, Deflategate and um, my personal favourite which is Gategate. Uh, in 2012 a British MP insulted a police officer who was stationed at a gate and refused to open open for him. And he, he probably later on had to resign and the whole thing was called Gategate which was just brilliant. Anyway, what was Watergate and why is it such a famous scandal? What happened... ...to cause a US president to resign in disgrace two years after the incident itself. Today, we're going to get across the entire story and all of its absurdities, although um, uh, a little more seriously, I, I suppose I should warn people here, I must warn you, um, when it comes to you know the half-assed history standbys of, of, of blood and guts and, and horrible murder this week, well... You know, I do in, I do feel it important to mention you must steal yourselves here because there's just hardly any of it at all in this story. They're just a disappointingly low level of, of blood and guts, it has to be said. You know, just a boring old political scandal. No one gets disemboweled or burnt alive or lost at sea, nothing like that. I mean, sorry. Sorry about that, everyone, you know. You can't, uh, you can't have blood and guts every week. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Anyway, this this story it involves a break in at the Watergate Hotel and office building uh, in Western DC, the US capital city, um, and of course the political fallout from not just the cover-ups of of the break in, but also the cover-ups of the original cover-ups. Um, and in the end, it did, it did end up going all the way to the top, in fact, all the way to the top with Nixon becoming the first and only US president to resign the position. So let's get to it. Let's get into it and find out how, well, how a young security guard finding a few bits of tape on some doors caused an entire presidency to come crashing down to the ground a few years later. We're going all the way back here, going all the way back to 1972, which is an election year in the United States uh, with U.S. President Richard Nixon in the final year of his first term. In the early hours of the 17th of June, 1972, a security guard whose name was Frank Wills was at the Watergate, uh, working at the Watergate Complex and he noticed something odd. Now, the Watergate Complex, a big series of buildings on the bank of the Potomac River, it's got offices, apartments, hotels, that sort of thing, right? Anyway, young Frank Wills, he's cutting about, he's just 24 years old, he's cutting about doing his job, keeping an eye on things, when he noticed that some of the latches on some of the doors that connected the underground car park to the offices had been taped over, so they'd stay unlocked. Now, this meant that the doors could close, obviously, but it it, it meant that they wouldn't lock when they did so. So obviously, you know, something funny's going on, it's a bit weird, perhaps suspicious, But all Wills did after noticing the tape was remove it and continue on his way. However, after going past the doors uh, a little later, he noticed that the tape was back. It had been reapplied. And this time, he's not going to muck around. This time, he's not going to muck around. He gets on the phone. He calls the cops. And he says, "Listen, here, I found this tape on these doors. I reckon something fishy's going on. You guys should come down and have a look at it." And they do. the co- the The cops they arrive, they thoroughly and uh, they quickly and thoroughly investigate the building, and they find five burglars right uh, creeping through the offices in in the Watergate complex here. And these burglars are in possession of door jimmies and lock picks, a police scanner, all sorts of, all sorts of suspicious stuff. Not to mention thousands of dollars in cash. These burglars. Had been creeping around in the offices of the Democratic National Committee headquarters. So you know, an organization, the Democratic Party. This is uh, obviously the the uh, political enemy, I suppose you could say, of the Republican Party, which Nixon belonged to. But of course, that wa- that wasn't what came into focus immediately. Anyway, they're creeping around the DNC uh, headquarters there, and they're caught in the process of applying wiretapping equipment to some of the phones in these DNC offices. Now. Most bloody suspicious, you'd think. What were these five blokes up to, and why were they there? Interestingly, also there was actually a, a sixth man. There was also a sixth. Uh, there was a sixth bloke um, who was who wasn't caught by the cops uh, at this stage. He was uh, he was a former FBI agent, Al- Alfred C. Baldwin. He was actually in charge of the whole operation here. He was the one uh, he was the one running the, uh, the the burglary, although he wasn't with the five burglars when they were arrested, and he himself wasn't arrested because while the five blokes were inside breaking into the DNC headquarters, he was on lookout. He was, well, supposed to be at least, he was over the road at a motel on lookout duty so he could alert the burglars if, you know, for example, the cops arrived. Why didn't he do this? You can't make this up, my friends. The reason that the burglars weren't warned of the arrival of the police by their lookout man, who had one job here, he had one job in making sure the, you know, if the cops were called, the the burglars inside were alerted. The reason he didn't do this was because he was hanging out in his motel room watching the 1958 sci-fi horror classic Attack of the Puppet People. Maybe if Attack of the Puppet People hadn't been such an engrossing cinematic masterpiece and hadn't distracted Baldwin, Nixon never would have resigned in disgrace. But as it was, the Attack of the Puppet People played a much larger role in the history of the United States than I imagine the filmmakers imagined it ever would as they were filming it. Anyway. These five burglars they're arrested, of course they're charged in 1973 they are convicted to be thrown in prison for their crimes. and that's the story of the Watergate break-in, one of the most infamous political scandals of the 20th you know of the 20th century. I mean in all honesty that really is it that that is the entire story. That's all that happened in Watergate that you know not the sort of thing you would think that could topple a US presidency, five blokes inexpertly applying wiretapping and getting caught by the cops. Like that's that's the story. This incident wasn't investigated all that much further, and the men involved stood trial soon enough, they faced their sentences. And it was treated by many as a bit of a non issue, despite the, you know, potentially politically charged nature of the crime, given that they are in the offices of the DNC there. Law enforcement seemed happy enough just to take it all at face value, and, you know, whack these blokes in front of a judge and call it a day. Bit weird, right? But the real issue, as I say, it wasn't with the break-ins themselves. It wasn't with the burglary. It was the cover-ups and the cover-ups of those cover-ups that ended up causing, you know, this big problem here. And this is what we're going to get across and start to unpack right now. Five burglars in an office building, weird, suspicious, sure. But again, not the sort of thing that would bring down a government, right? However, A couple of things emerged during the perfunctory investigation into these five men and their activities, and alarm bells began to ring when the address books of a couple of these burglars were found to contain the name and details of a bloke whose name was E. Howard Hunt. Now, Hunt was a security consultant, ex-CIA who now worked in the White House as part of the Special Investigations Unit, also known as the White House Plumbers. Their job was, uh, part of their job was to stop leaks, so they were given this nickname, but they were effectively a uh, very clandestine secret part of the Nixon administration that uh, <clears throat> had a number of extracurricular ac- uh, affairs and activities, I guess you could say, as part of their purview. So why were these burglars in touch with a reasonably high-placed White House aide? When this emerged that there was a potential link between the burglars and Hunt, the press leapt on the story and started to publish it just a couple of days after the break-in. Now, obviously, the White House had to respond to what the press was talking about and, 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 you know, attempt to clarify the potential connection here. And in the coming days, the White House took a very simple approach to this issue – they denied everything. There was no connection between the Nixon administration, and the burglars and the DNC headquarters the White House claimed. Nixon himself came out and stated that <clears throat> no one in the White House staff, no one in this administration presently employed was involved in this very bizarre incident that was that was his quote. That's what he came out and said just days after. This uh, this break in went uh, went public. He also went on to say in this in this very same interview went on to say what really hurts is if you try to cover it up. We have indicated that we want all the facts brought out. A very interesting line to take here for Nixon, considering that you know considering what's still to come as part of this scandal and his role. Not let me tell you, but we'll come to that in due course. However, five or six weeks after the burglary on the first of August, the plot thickened even further when it was revealed that a $25,000 cheque had been deposited in a bank account belonging to one of the burglars. Now, this cheque had been written by a bloke named Kenneth H. Dahlberg. This wasn't the interesting part. Kenneth H. Dahlberg was a a political donor who had made a legitimate donation to the Committee for the Re-Election of the President. This is to whom the cheque had been written uh, as, as a campaign donation. And this check had then been endorsed and sent on to one of these burglars, which was not only very suspicious, but also on very shaky ground from a legal perspective. And all of a sudden, this committee for the re-election of the president took centre stage in a way that I imagine it hadn't hoped to. Clearly, there was more to this story. Clearly, these links ran deeper between the burglars and maybe White House personnel and potentially even this committee for the re-election of the president. So investigations followed, of course, and turned up the indisputable fact that there was indeed a connection between the five burglars and this committee, the committee for the re-election of the president, the CRP. Bank records showed money from legitimate legal political donations that were given in name to the CRP. These donations instead were being chopped and changed and funneled here and there to fund activities such as the Watergate break-in, all under the control of of the CRP. Now, this could be disastrous for the Nixon administration, especially considering it's an election year. The election itself was looming, you know, it's, it's coming ever closer. November is, uh, is hurrying along. And papers reported the conspiracy and just how far it went. An organization closely linked with Nixon, the CRP, was paying people to break the law in an effort to, at minimum, illegally monitor political opponents. On the 10th of October in 1972, a groundbreaking report was released by two journalists. You might have heard of these blokes, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. These were two blokes who, uh, who released a report that detailed how the Watergate break-ins were connected to an enormous conspiracy of political sabotage and espionage committed by the CRP. The election is a month away, Woodward and Bernstein, they're out here, bloody kicking goals with both feet, amongst countless others as well, dropping bombshells all over the place. You'd think this would have been an absolute disaster for Nixon's re-election chances, right? Something like this emerging on the eve of an election, a deep-seated conspiracy that threatened to unhinge and unsettle the entire campaign? Nope. The 1972 election was an absolute landslide for Nixon. He won four. 49 states with over 60% of the popular vote. A lot of media outlets just didn't cover the Watergate story or pick up on the implications of reports like those that were made by Woodward and Bernstein. They instead focused on election campaigning and, and election coverage and didn't run any stories on this conspiracy or, you know, how it was developing or what these connections might involve. Although there were media outlets that did, the Washington Post, and New York Times, uh, Time Magazine, as well, all, all report on this extensively, but it wasn't enough to uh, to swing the election away from Nixon, and he won comfortably. And all the while, as Nixon, you know, sailed into a second term of the White House, his administration just denied everything. They denied even knowing about the burglars, let alone being organize, you know, involved with organizing or funding them. Nothing like that. The administ- the Nixon administration, also made use of a tactic that we've seen very commonly. In more recent times, particularly under the previous U.S. administration, they sought to discredit the media. They sought to discredit the press outlets that were coming after them over the Watergate affair, criticising them heavily during these denials of the reports, attempting to characterise them as politically biased, making what they called wild accusations. But here's the thing, they weren't. They weren't wild accusations at all. These journalists had highly placed, reliable sources that gave them unparalleled access to what was really going on. Woodward and Bernstein, they had access to an anonymous source that fed them information, not only of the original conspiracy surrounding the break-in, but of course, the plans to cover it up. They heard how the conspiracy went all the way to the top, and, and despite the White House denying it all with every breath they took, that even Nixon himself knew about the break-ins and was attempting to make sure that they got properly covered up. Woodward and Bernstein uncovered all sorts of things, like the fact that financial records surrounding those political donations being uh, used to fund the CRP's illegal, illegal activities had been destroyed in order to hide the evidence, to, you know, to, to brush this paper trail under the rug. And their best placed and most famous anonymous source, of course, when uh, when uh, you know undertaking this investigation, was Deep Throat. You may have heard this name before. Whether it's in connection to the to this you know anonymous political inform- informant of the nineteen seventies, or of course the famous nineteen seventy two pornog flick of the same name. I, I mean, I. P- I don't know anything, but it's just some of my friends were 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 talk, tell me. I, I mean, I personally haven't. I don't know anything. I, I mean, I wouldn't even you know. I wouldn't even know where to start with something like that. Of course, you know, but just some of my some of people, not friends. I would say friends, but people people I know who you know. I, I mean, I over, I wasn't. I just overheard. I was anyway. The point is here: the deep throat was the na- nickname they gave to this bloke, right? And for years and years, we didn't know who he was. Um, the, his uh, true true identity was a, a total mystery until two thousand and five, uh, when it was revealed that the informant was none other than FBI associate director Mark Felt a very high placed source indeed and someone who definitely knew what he was talking about when it came to this uh, this entire process of attempting to cover up the involvement of the CRP of ultimately the Nixon administration in the Watergate affair Felt would meet with Woodward and Bernstein in an underground car park he tipped them off about what was happening on the inside so to speak Uh, as the Nixon administration leveraged its political power to cover up the entire scandal. Felt also leaked information to other news outlets as well, taking a fair few risks in doing so. But it seemed that he did a good job because he wasn't suspected from within the FBI or the government, seemingly, uh, and was instrumental in blowing the whole thing wide open. But it wasn't just Woodward and Bernstein and their informant Deep Deepthroat. There was another avenue of investigation that was opening up as well, parallel to these journalists and the, and the insight that they were gathering. Some of the Watergate burglars were beginning to talk. They were beginning to sing like canaries about a uh, a conspiracy as well. Despite their receipt of what was ostensibly hush money that we've talked about here, they also start to rec- started to reconsider their position. There was a bloke named John Sirica. He was a district judge in D.C. He was the one that oversaw the trial of these burglars. And I'll tell you this, he wasn't buying the original story. These blokes, these five uh, these five burglars, you know, after having be- been paid this hush matter, they came and said, oh, look, we were acting of our own, own accord. We weren't ordered to do it. We- it was all just us. To, you know, th- there was no one else involved. Now, Sirica, obviously, mate, he wasn't born yesterday. He's figured out there's something else going on. And so he says, all right, you blokes... No worries at all, I find you guilty, and I'll sentence you provisionally to 40 years in prison. Now, this was an absurdly harsh sentence, of course, for what was a burglary, 40 years behind bars. But it was a provisional sentence, and it was done with a very good reason. Sirica, in giving them a provisional sentence that could later be revised and finalised at a final sentencing, Sirica encouraged the burglars to just... Rethink their stories a little bit, rethink these, uh, you know, rethink these tall stories that they'd spun. And he made it clear that their provisional 40 year sentences could be drastically reduced were they to be a bit more forthcoming with the truth. And I'll tell you this it bloody worked. The cracks started to show. One of the burglars even came out and wrote a formal statement detailing how the CRP and even the Nixon administration itself were involved in not just organising but also funding this burglary. So the deny everything approach that Nixon and his government had taken clearly wasn't going to cut it because you've got these journalists hounding at this story, you've got these burglars coming out and changing their tune as well when threatened with 40 years behind bars. It was impossible for the Nixon administration to deny a total lack of involvement in the Watergate affair anymore. They went into damage control, therefore, and sought to, well, I was going to say nip it in the bud, but, I mean, you know, it's a little bit late for that. Instead, as 1973 continued, the White House distanced itself from the CRP. They sought to put some political distance between themselves and this organisation, the men in charge of it, all of whom, by the way, were top aides and advisers to Nixon himself, John Ehrlichman, H.R. Alderman, John Dean, and even a bloke named John N. Mitchell, who was the Attorney General at the time. These were the blokes that became the fall guys designed to save Nixon's presidency. As more of the burglars came forward, thanks to Sirica's provisional sentencing, you know, claiming to have been coerced into remaining silent, Nixon lined up these four aides as the scapegoats for the whole affair. Nixon attempted to separate himself from the conspiracy by claiming no prior knowledge of the Watergate affair. He said it was all organized without his knowledge or his consent by these and other people as well. And he asked for their resignation or just straight up fired them. He threw them to the wolves to pay for the Watergate scandal and again, to try to distance himself personally from the whole incident. He was trying to paint a picture that, you know, this had been done on his behalf, but without his knowledge or his approval. As a result of these, uh, these resignations, after these blokes were again, as I say, thrown to the walls, Nixon even appointed a new Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, and instructed Richardson to establish a special counsel to investigate the Watergate affair. This bloke who was appointed the, uh, the, the special counsel, he was a fellow named Archibald Cox, he was the one chosen to lead up the, uh, the investigation, he was tasked with looking into the scandal independent of the Justice Department. So this is a good look for Nixon here. He's managed to put some distance between him and the blokes that he's, you know, accusing of having been the masterminds behind the whole thing. And now he's set up an independent inquiry into the scandal. You know, again, it's a good look. The optics are pretty good for Nixon here. And he seems to have drawn a bit, you know, it is a nice way to draw a line under everything you might have thought here. However, Nixon's attempt to get some distance between him and the affair by having others take the blame it ultimately didn't work. It didn't work out for him very well at all, as you'll see. Because despite this attempt to put distance between him and the four guys, despite the independent special counsel, despite all these efforts, the threads continued to unravel in the coming months. By now, enough attention had been brought to this scandal that the US Congress itself was involved in the, in its investigation. The Senate set up, a, set up a, a select committee to investigate the scandal, and between May and August in 1973, these Senate committee hearings were broadcast live on television. And they happened in parallel to Cox's investigation as a special counsel, but these two investigations came together in a remarkable way after a bombshell from the Senate committee hearings, or a series of bombshells, actually, Remember John Dean, one of the four guys? Well, he was dragged in front of the Senate committee and he testified and gave a huge revelation to the proceedings. He believed that all of the conversations that he'd had with Nixon in the Oval Office had been recorded. He thought they'd been tape recorded. And why did he think this? Well, in front of the Senate committee, he talked about how he remembered a conversation with the president in which he was prodded by Nixon throughout this entire chat into saying certain things. Dean found this a little odd at the time that Nixon was trying to corner him into saying this or that or the other thing about the whole scandal. And it made him suspect that he was being recorded during those Oval Office meetings and that Nixon wanted Dean on record as saying this, that or the other thing. Now, this testimony was coupled with another bombshell, some statements made by a White House assistant whose name was Alexander Butterfield, Butterfield was questioned by the Senate Committee as well, and he reluctantly admitted that the Oval Office did indeed have a secret voice-activated recording system installed inside it so as to record, again, all the conversations that took place in the Oval Office. On live television, in front of a huge audience, Butterfield admitted that more or less every single conversation held by Nixon in the Oval Office, and the Cabinet Room, and Nixon's private office as well for good measure, had been recorded. Now, this, of course, was an absolute game-changer. These tapes, these recordings, would conclusively prove whether Nixon knew about the Watergate break-ins and the following cover-up, because they would have recorded any conversations that took place on the topic inside the Oval Office. Now, Cox, the special counsel, he immediately subpoenas these tapes from the White House, the Senate did too, just for good measure, but Nixon refused to hand the tapes over to Cox, the special counsel. He cited executive privilege in refusing and told Cox to drop the whole thing and drop the subpoena. Now Cox refused. And on the 20th of October in 1973, Nixon responded to Cox's refusal and, and the compromises that Cox had put forward on the table here. Nixon responded by instructing Richardson, the new attorney general who had, you know, appointed Cox in the first place, to fire Cox. Now Richardson, rather than, you know, follow through on this order that had been given to him by the President of the United States, he turned around and says, stick it up your bum, Nixon, old mate, I'm not doing this for you. Obviously something funny's going on. You've got me to buddy, you know, appoint this bloke in the first place. Now you getting you want me wanted me to fire him. I'm not gonna do it. I will resign. Before I will follow this order that you've given me. And Richardson, then and there, he resigned. He resigned his spot as the, as the Attorney General, and Nixon had to go and find someone else to, to get rid of Cox, this thorn in his side. So he approaches the Deputy Attorney General, a bloke whose name was William Ruckelshaus, and says to him, Listen, mate, you got to get rid of this Cox bloke. Don't like him. Ruckelshaus also turns around and tells Nixon to stick it where the sun don't shine. He also resigned rather than carry out Nixon's orders. And so Nixon now, he just has to keep going down the line, scouring the Justice Department to find anyone who was willing to carry out his will and fire Cox. And these resignations, they became known as the Saturday Night Massacre. And uh, this, this incident was something of a turning point in the whole affair, let me tell you this. The public had been divided on Nixon up until this point. His, his rhetoric about the media and the liberals and everything else had been very effective and many had fallen for the stuff that he'd said about the press and all of his denials in relation to the whole scandal. But after seeing these resignations after this Saturday Night Massacre, you know, in addition to the refusal to submit to the subpoenas, trying to fire Special Counsel Cox, all the rest of it, Nixon's image was becoming harder and harder to salvage in the eyes of the general public. Eventually, the Solicitor General, a bloke whose name was Robert Bork, he agreed to pull the trigger and Cox, this independent investigator who still refused to drop the subpoenas, was fired. So Nixon got his way in the end. But this move went down like a fart in an elevator, I can tell you. It really didn't reflect too well on a president who was still proclaiming innocence and ignorance. You know, he was going around saying he had nothing to do with the whole affair. But in the same breath, he's also firing the special the special counsel who's supposed to be investigating him. And it was after Cox's firing that Nixon gave the, the now famous or infamous, rather, press conference where he claimed, I am not a crook. Now, Nixon had, you know... Many different talents, but I'll tell you this, one of them certainly wasn't accurate self-reflection because uh, this statement was proven to be very incorrect in the fullness of time. He certainly was a crook, but his uh, iconic denial of wrongdoing in this press conference certainly uh, ended up becoming a very famous or, again, infamous part of this president's legacy. Anyway, after Cox was fired, a new special counsel was appointed to replace him, a bloke whose name was Leon Jaworski. However, it didn't get any easier for Nixon after Jaworski took his new uh, took up his new position because Jaworski picked right up from where Cox had left off. He subpoenaed the White House tapes straight away, but Nixon continued to refuse to release them in full. He sort of compromised by instead releasing edited transcripts of these tapes. Now, This didn't go down too well either, as even the edited transcripts actually painted a poor picture of the president, not just because, you know, people knew that he'd probably taken the worst bits out, but also the bits that had been left in, ostensibly not the worst bits, also reflected very, very badly on Nixon. The media leapt on and sifted through the transcripts. And as more and more people read them, it became clear that Nixon, you know, even if he hadn't incriminated himself with these edited transcripts, he really didn't come off well in the stuff that was released as part of them. They they, they showed Nixon as a devious, callous, self in, self-interested and all around nasty bloke, you know, maybe sounds a little too familiar in this day and age, but the US was revealed to have a president who was brash and rude and uncaring and uncouth, someone who... Clearly didn't have very much respect for the country that he led. Even these edited transcripts, I'll remind you, these are the ones that Nixon approved for release, scoured of evidence and of wrongdoing. They still painted a pretty bloody unpleasant picture of Nixon and his political report, uh, support eroded very swiftly indeed. But still, Chaworsky and others pushed for the, the full release of all the tapes, unedited, and they ended up taking it all the way to the Supreme Court, who in an 8-0 decision, compelled Nixon to release the tapes in full, rejecting his claim of executive privilege. So finally, with the Supreme Court itself ordering Nixon into action, he finally had no other options. He released the tapes themselves, not just the transcripts, all of them. Well, we'll come to all of them in a sec. Almost all of them. And they were, of course, poured over quickly to find evidence of Nixon's awareness of the Watergate break-ins and the cover-ups that followed. And oh my goodness me, what evidence there was. Nixon was on tape having conversations about paying hush money to the burglars agreeing to to pay blackmailers who knew about the scandal and and were now squeezing Nixon and his associates. All sorts of other details that made it clear that Nixon knew all about, not just the break-in, but the cover-up afterwards. And this, of course, flew in the face of the strident denials, the lies that Nixon had stuck to throughout this whole thing. Remember, He'd been lying his pants off for months and months, telling everyone who would listen. He had nothing to do with it. He knew nothing about it at all. No one in the White House was involved. Everyone's hands were clean. Now, I said it, you know, all it wasn't quite all the tapes. And the reason for this, this is a mystery that has lasted through to this very day, you know, nearly 50 years later here. There was a portion of the tape, an 18-and-a-half-minute portion, in fact, that had, you know, despite the subpoenas, despite people hounding Nixon for the full release of all these tapes unedited, this portion had been erased. It was a recording of a meeting between Nixon and Haldeman, one of the four guys that I mentioned earlier, and it was a meeting that took place just a few days after the break-in. Notes from the meeting indicate that Watergate was indeed discussed, but the contents of the recording are lost. And would you like to hear, revered listener, the cover story that the White House cooked up to explain this missing portion? They claimed that Nixon's secretary, Rosemary Woods, had been transcribing some tapes one day when the phone rang. Now... The tape recorder that she was using, uh, it had pedal controls, right, to record moving back or forth or stopping or recording, whatever. And uh, as the phone rang, Woods leant across her desk to answer it. But as she picked it up, she pressed her foot down accidentally on the record pedal that was right next to the stop pedal. She then kept the record pedal pressed down for the next five minutes while she was on the phone, for the entire length of the phone call, apparently. And then, well, actually, there isn't really a then. There was never an explanation given for the remaining 13 and a half minutes. The White House weren't able to explain how the rest of the tape got... I mean, they didn't just say, oh, the phone call lasted 18 and a half minutes. The first five minutes of it were erased by Woods accidentally pressing a pedal under her desk while answering the phone... Then after five minutes, the the fairies took away the other 13 and a half minutes. They never were able to give an account, a satisfactory account of what happened to this period of the recording here. Woods was, uh, this is very funny, Woods was asked to replicate the position <laughs> that saw her press her foot down in order to answer the phone. Uh, and I do suggest you look up the photos that were taken of her trying to replicate uh, what was uh, supposed to have happened that resulted in the erasure of uh, of this tape. You, you should look it up because it is, uh, it, it's very funny indeed. Anyway, to this day, we still don't know what that 18 and a half minute gap covered up. The tape is, interestingly, currently in the possession of the National Archives in tightly controlled storage, and it's hoped that future technology will one day allow us to recover the erased recording and unlock its secrets. However... Even with the missing 18 and a half minutes, the release of these tapes was enough to finally expose Nixon's lies and ultimately bring down his administration. The final tape that sealed Nixon's fate became known as the smoking gun tape. It revealed another conversation between Nixon and Haldeman, again, not too long after the break-in it was recorded. And this tape revealed the fact that Nixon himself just days after the incident at Watergate, had ordered the CIA to tell the FBI not to investigate the break-in. Remember at the top of the show how I talked about how the investigation into Watergate was perfunctory and many law enforcement officials were happy to more or less, look the other way as the uh, as the five burglars were hauled in front of the judge. You know, no one really dug too deep from a criminal standpoint as to exactly why the men were there and what and you know what they were attempting to do or, or for whom they were working. None of that was looked into, of course. Very kind of weird, right? Well, there was a reason for it. Nixon had lent on the CIA, instructed them to make up some nonsense about national security in order to then lean on the FBI. To close down their investigation this final tape it revealed you can go online you can listen to the conversation you can go and listen to nixon and haldeman discuss and and settle upon the line they're going to take with the cia the reasoning they'll instruct the cia to use when blocking the fbi's investigation how they're going to approach the whole thing and the funny thing was this revelation that Nixon had lent on the CIA to lean on the FBI, this revelation that Nixon had not only known about the burglary, but had also actively attempted to cover it up, was much worse than the burglary ever was in the first place. This was effectively a confession to obstruction of justice from the President of the United States. Nixon was not only proven to have known about the Watergate break-ins from the first, but also now was clearly implicated in being involved with covering them up, which, of course, completely contradicted everything he'd maintained since the affair came to light in the first place. He is knee-deep in blackmail, in hush money, in all sorts of criminal activity here. What little remained of Nixon's political support Completely evaporated after this, of course. Congress got underway with articles of impeachment. Nixon himself was told by Republican leaders in Congress that he was going to be impeached. He didn't have the support of, of, of House or, or Senate Republicans. And if impeachment went underway, he would be duly convicted. And rather than suffer this ignominious fate, Nixon instead... On the 8th of August in 1974, to avoid impeachment, to avoid the near certainty of conviction, he resigned. With his political career in tatters, Nixon gave a televised address in which he announced his resignation. And in this address, he, he oh dear, much as in the previous press conference where he said, I am not a crook, in this one he claimed, I have never been a quitter. Well, that seemed to be just as true as when he claimed he wasn't a crook. Because he tendered his resignation to the Secretary of State. And on the 9th of August in 1974, he made his famous helicopter departure from the White House. Gerald Ford was sworn in as his, as, uh, his successor as President, the first and only President of the United States to never have been elected as either President or Vice President. He replaced Nixon's 1972 running mate, Spiro Agnew, who had also had to resign back in 1973 due to a different scandal. Talk about birds of a bloody feather. Famously, or I should say infamously, one of Ford's first actions as president was to give Nixon a full pardon, full and unconditional pardon Nixon was granted by Ford. So Nixon couldn't face criminal prosecution for anything that he'd done while president. Now, this deep sixth Ford's popularity and his public standing. He lost the 1960s, uh, 1976 election to Jimmy Carter, who didn't even serve a full term. And Nixon, for his part, spent the rest of his life. He moved back to his native California and made the occasional public appearance while White writing his memoirs and, and gave the odd interview here and there while fighting through money trouble, most famously with David Frost in 1977. Nixon died in 1994 after a stroke. And even today, he's principally remembered for little other than the Watergate scandal and everything that it involved. It turns out that he was a crook, after all. Before we finish, there's one final thing I want to talk about here. Something that we just kind of glossed over at the beginning, when we started with Frank Wills and you know those bits of tape on the door latches. And it's this. What were the burglars doing there in the first place? What was their actual aim in breaking into the DNC headquarters and bugging their phones? What was the CRP trying to achieve here? It's thought that in early 1972, members of the CRP, some of these, you know, the, fall, the four four guys that I was talking about earlier, got together and planned various things that they were going to do, such as the organisation and the funding of burglars to be sent to the DNC amongst who knows what else, and that these these blokes further gave them their instructions to wiretap the phones and steal documents from the DNC headquarters. But the question is, like, why? Uh, Sure, I mean, you get access to the DNC phone calls, you nick some documents which might give you information that you didn't have, but, I mean, then what? It's never actually been properly determined what the final aim of the CRP was in breaking into Watergate like this. As ridiculous as it sounds, we don't really know what they were trying to do. There are a range of different theories. Some suggest that the CRP was trying to link the DNC to funding from communist Cuba so as to discredit them politically. Others suggested that it wasn't Cuba that was the sought after link, but instead prostitution. The CRP was hoping to connect the, D- the DNC with a prostitution ring. How about that? Broadly speaking, I mean, I guess you can argue the CRP was just seeking information, right? Political, financial, whatever. Just seeking some kind of political leverage off their opponents, anything that might aid them in winning the upcoming election. But the fact remains. That even today, even, I mean, decades after this issue has been examined and re-examined in the, in the 50 years since it took place, we still don't know what the entire purpose of the break-in was. The whole thing that kicked off this chain of cover-ups and denials and more cover-ups of the original cover-ups that, that eventually brought lower low an entire presidential administration. And it's pretty ridiculous to think about the fact that we don't really know the final purpose of the people who organised and orchestrated what led to this entire scandal. Especially when you consider that the break-in and its cover-up and the covering-up of that cover-up all culminated in bringing down the very government that it sought to illegitimately support. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Watergate scandal. Again, something I'm sure that most listeners will have heard of heading into this episode. But all the same, very interesting to get into some of the juicy details that this story involved. So I do hope you enjoyed the show. Anyway, that is that for this episode of half Hour History, all the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way here and now, halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form there if you want to submit your own topic suggestion and, uh, of course, links to old episodes. If you want to subscribe to the show, anchor.fm slash History. That's where you can find the feed. And if you want to support the show financially, of course, I mean, it is much appreciated. All the people who uh, who are chucking me money via Patreon every week or every month, I should say. Thank you so much to all of you. Patreon.com slash Half-Ass History if you want to join their exalted ranks. A special thank you to all the people who are uh, you know out there gaining access to all the, uh, the special bonus content. You get early access to episodes, show notes, behind-the-scenes stuff, whatever else. Um, but thank you to you for listening. Even if you're not supporting the show financially, you're certainly supporting it just by listening to it. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely amb- ambivalent. Those numbers all show up the same. I appreciate you spreading the good word. Anyway, that is that for this week. See you back here next week for more half hour History. Until then, leaving you with a question post on Reddit, of course. Reddit historian Lyseman Cometh asks, How exactly did President Nixon start his post-presidency watch company?